0: Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent-to-retirement? Rent-to-retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller-financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, they've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high-cash-flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777.
1: Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. slash pockets carefully consider the investment objectives risks charges and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing this and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrisecom flagship this is a paid advertisement you're
2: trying to close on your next rental so why is your insurance company dragging its feet with long lead times and never ending paper forms it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to On the Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today we have an incredible guest for you. We have Anna Wong joining us. And Anna is the chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg, which, if you're unfamiliar, is an enormous media company that covers investing and economics throughout the world. Prior to that, Anna was the principal economist at the Federal Reserve Board. She was the chief international economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And she's done incredible things all over the world of economics. So if you are one of those people who listen to the show because you are nerdy and wonky and really like understanding what is going on, not just in the U.S. economy, but in the global economy, you are definitely going to want to listen to this episode. I will say that Anna is ext- Extremely intelligent, and she gets into some complicated, more, well, not complicated, just more advanced economic topics. So just a caveat there, but she does a very good job explaining everything that she's thinking about and talking about. So if you want to learn and get better and better understand the global economy, I think you're going to really, really appreciate this show. Just as a preview of what we talk about, we start basically just talking about the differences between a soft and hard landing. If you haven't heard those terms, basically when the Fed is going out there and talking about risk of recession, they think that there's going to be a quote unquote soft landing, which means that we'll either avoid a recession or perhaps there'll be a very, very mild recession. On the other hand, a hard landing would be a more severe, more sort of average type of recession where there's significant job losses, declines in GDP, that kind of thing. So we start the conversation there. Anna, who has worked at the Fed and at the White House, has some really interesting thoughts and some very specific um, ideas about what's going to tilt the economy one way or another. And then after our discussion of the U.S. economy, I couldn't resist. I did have to ask her about the Chinese economy because we've been hearing for years about how real estate in China is dragging down their economy. And just in the middle of August, over the last couple of days, we've heard some increasingly concerning news about the Chinese economy, what's going on there. Actually, just yesterday, the Chinese government announced they were no longer going to release certain data sets because it really just wasn't looking very good. And Anna has you know, studied the Chinese economy for decades, and so she has a lot of really interesting thoughts on what's going on in China and how it could potentially spill over into the U.S. economy and specifically, honestly, a little bit into the real estate industry. So that's what we got for you today. I hope you guys enjoy it. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll bring on Anna Wong, the chief economist for Bloomberg LP.
3: Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at Dealmachine.com/BP.
2: The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting, from finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home-owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's
4: vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges
1: Anna Wong, welcome to On The Market. Thank you for being here.
5: Happy to be here,
1: Dave. Can you start by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into economics?
5: Right. So I started being very interested in economics because of financial crisis back in early 2000s um, in in college. And um, after that, I started working in D.C. for uh, some Former senior officials in the IMF and the th- at the Federal Reserve, and in early 2000s, it was a pretty exciting time to study global economics. Partly because there was some very interesting phenomenon that ha- was happening, such as the global saving glut, and the dollar depreciation, and you know China accumulating inter- uh, international reserves by via purchasing uh, U.S. Treasuries. And um, you know, and also predictions that maybe uh, the U.S. housing market was and en- uh, was in a bubble, and there will be a correction. And so, when 2008 uh, happened, I was in graduate school, uh, getting my PhD in economics from um, University of Chicago. After I got my graduate degree, I worked at the U.S. Treasury on the international side of things, and there I had covered uh, G7 countries. I had been through the uh, fiscal cliff in 2013 in the U.S., and I also covered China in 2015 and 2016. And after Treasury, I went to work as an economist in the Federal Reserve Board, where I also covered the Chinese economy. And I did that for a couple of years. And uh, during the trade war, I uh, I, I went to work for a year at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. So every year, the Federal Reserve would send an economist to the White House CEA. Um, that's historically been the case. So I was that economist from 2019 and 2020. Uh, and while I was really there for to work on trade war, supply chain resiliency, which actually started before uh, the the pandemic began cause, uh, because of the trade war, there was already a lot of concerns about vulnerability of U.S. supply chains. So when the pandemic happened, I was also there to study, to forecast what would happen to the U.S. economy if there were no fiscal stimulus and what is the appropriate size of the fiscal stimulus and forecasting the collapse of the U.S. economy in April 2020. And I will never forget that moment. It was very formative that that second part of my tenure at the White House during the pandemic, and so that that was why I uh, I, I became the chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg because I thought this is the time to forecast, and study the U.S. economy um, because it is it it's a time where if you have a view about where inflation is heading, where GDP growth is heading, this is a very exciting time. Whereas uh, t- you know, in the previous 10 years, inflation just, you know, fluctuate around one percent to two point something percent. It's just not a not as exciting as on the international side of things. So now as a Bloomberg chief economist, uh, chief U.S. economist, I mainly focus on uh, forecasting, forecasting where inflation is going uh, where growth is going, whether there w- will be a recession, and um, what the Fed funds rate where it would go. Um, so that's that's my job now.
1: All right. Well, it sounds like we have someone extremely qualified to answer all of our questions that we have for you. So we we feel lucky to have you here, Anna. And I do. I want to talk about. Um, the Chinese economy in just a little bit because there's been a lot of news coming out about it. And uh, given that our show is so much about real estate and some of the trouble they're having with real estate, we're particularly interested. But I'd love to just start sort of at the... Sort of at the highest level here, given your experience at the Fed too, we're hearing a lot about from from the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell a lot about a soft landing and if that's possible. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about the concept of the soft landing first of all, and what your views on the feasibility of it is?
5: Yeah, I think um, the the concept of soft landing is not very well defined. Uh, uh, it's a nebulous concept because some people would interpret it as saying that there would be a recession, but it will be very mild where uh, unemployment rate will still increase to, you know, from today's 3.5% to 4-ish percent. Uh, but I think right now, most investors who are talking about s- soft lending are really of the mind that there won't be a recession at all and that inflation would come down painlessly where the labor market will continue to be tight i think that's basically what people have implicitly in in their mind and in terms of the possibility of this so bloomberg economics our my group is still off the uh, of the mind that there will be a recession that getting inflation back to 2% which is the fed's target will be painful and that um a, a rise in unemployment rate to at least 4.5% is necessary to bring inflation back to 2%. We are um, skeptical of the soft landing optimism for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, so many people today cited resilient consumption. You saw the strong retail spending yesterday, right? I mean, yes. and, uh, many people cite that as one reason of soft landing. Well, uh, when we looked at the pattern of consumption over the past recessions in the last 50 years, well, it turns out that consumption always is resilient before a recession. And even in a recession, in an average recession, consumption does not even drop off. Like Consumption just Hmm. maybe even tails off services consumption. In fact, on average, grow at trend even during a recession. So it's it's just not the kind of indicator you want to derive comfort in because it it has no forecastability of a recession. Second reason that people cite it as why they're optimistic, um, it's uh, just broad broadly speaking, economic indicators lately have been surprising on the upside. It turns out that two months before the Great Recession in two thousand and seven, so December two thousand seven is the beginning of that recession. Two months before that, economic data were all surprising on the high side as well. PMI was uh, going, uh, doing well, and um, auto purchases uh, was also solid. Non farm payroll, just two months before that recession, was going at 166,000 jobs added. Just two months before it, it, it became very, um, you know, start to be negative. So currently we have non um, in the re- most recent jobs report. Uh, we saw that the economy added 187,000 jobs, and that number is likely to be smaller in the next month because uh, we have seen in the past couple of weeks bankruptcy of the trucking company Yellow, mm-hmm. and that will you know, already shaved off at least 20,000 from the headline. And also, we have been seeing a trend of downward revisions in these um, jobs number. And by looking at various benchmark series, our our view is that the non-farm payroll number is overstating the strength of the economy. And the disinflation trend, the low core inflation reading that we have been seeing lately, is not due to painless reasons. It is because the underlying job market and labor market is weakening more than these headline figures are suggesting. We are expecting consumer delinquencies to uh, surge after October. And we are already seeing small firms bankruptcy uh, going up sharply. We are expecting by the end of the year, small firms bankruptcy would reach the level that you would last see in 2010. So would consumer delinquencies. And in fact, I think the best economic indicators we've proven uh, forecasting ability for a recession is the Federal Reserve a survey of senior loan officers. And in that survey, uh, the Fed asked senior loan officers in banks, what are the plans for credit tightening in, in the second half of the year? What did they do in the past six months? And this is actually a causal channel of economic activity, right? Whereas consumption, uh, resilient consumption, PMI, those are like coincident indicators but whereas you know lending is the it people can only spend if they can borrow and lately this is what you're seeing consumption is propped up by borrowing so the moment that it becomes harder for them to borrow or the cost of financing these borrowing becomes exorbitant they will have to downshift their activity similarly on the corporate side the mysterious things uh, that that has been um, you know, why Why the on the corporate side, we see activity being very resilient is still very narrow corporate spreads. And usually, in a downturn, you will see widened corporate spreads. That's because bankruptcies are happening and uh, credit risk are worsened. And there will be credit downgrades, you know, things like that. And we're seeing the very, very beginning of that. And usually, when that happens, it's a very nonlinear process. One of the reasons that people have been citing as why we won't have a problem like we did in previous recession this time on the corporate side is that credit quality is very good. And looking at mortgage origination, you see the credit scores of consumers are very good, right? Nowhere near what it was in 2006. But what happens is that some of the pandemic uh, policies, such as the student loan forbearance policies, have distorted credit scores. In fact, you know, by some estimation, credit scores might be artificially inflated by 50 basis point. So if you kind of look at the, you know, tranches of mortgage originations by credit scores, and you discount the lower 10 percentile, 20 percentile of mortgages by, you know, 50 basis point of credit score, in fact, credit quality is not that much better than 2006. So I think that a lot of these Things that are underneath the service will only bubble up to the the service as you start seeing this uh, snowball, you know, financial accelerator kind of effect. And that's why I just don't think that the things that people have been citing for being optimistic about soft lending today do not stand the test of history. You know, so this is why we are still uh, thinking that a recession will happen later this year.
1: Great. Thank you. Yeah. And you just answered one of my other questions. But just to to summarize for everyone, it sounds like what a lot of prominent media outlets or other forecasters are relying on are variables that don't necessarily have the right predictive qualities uh, for a, a recession. And some of the data points that you just pointed to are, in fact, better examples of what we should be looking at if we're trying to forecast a recession. I you said at the end of this year, um, and I wanted to just follow up on, on, on this conversation because, um, it does seem from the other forecasts I read, people are sort of split. The people who do believe there's a recession, some say end of this year, some say the, you know, in the beginning or middle of 2024. The Fed started raising interest rates. What is it now? 15, 18 months ago, something like that. We know that it takes some time for these interest rates effects rate hikes to ripple through the economy. But what do you expect to happen between now and the end of the year that's going to go from this sort of like gray area that we're in now to a bona fide recession?
5: Yeah, a um, very good question, Dave. So resilience in the economy in the last two years, to be able to accurately forecast a recession, I think, one needs to also have a good understanding of what is boosting the resilience in the last two years, right? And for us, we actually have been pushing against recession calls last year, Dave. If you remember last year, there was a lot of people who who were talking about recession at the end of last year um, or in the middle of last year, Uh, but we were never in that camp. We have been consistently saying that the recession will be in Q3 of this year, Q4, or Q1 2024. And the reason why is precisely because of the lags that you just described of monetary policy. So we estimated some models, and all those models would suggest that the peak uh, impact of monetary policy would occur around the end of this year, around the end of this year. Hmm. So I think those are the tools that central bankers typically use, like top down, Vasi, PhD models, right? Um, but we also look at this from a bottom up kind of perspective because there are some unique things propping up the economy these two years, right? One of which is, uh, that household to have built up this cash buffer, uh, from the fiscal stimulus and also from savings during the last two years because in the early part of the pandemic they they couldn't spend if they have all this money, right and also from the stock market, wealth effect all that and so we 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 look at the uh, by also income buckets, how much uh households have in excess savings. and what we see is that in terms of the runway uh how how many months uh that these cash buffers, could support somebody's normal spending habit without them needing a job or something like that. It shows that by the end of this year, towards the end of this year is when probably the lower half of the population will be out of these buffers. So either they come back to the job market, and this is why labor supply has been increasing this year so far. It is, it's because of these people who were on the sidelines suddenly feel that desperation that they need this job, right? Because the cushion is gone, right? And, and so so that's one reason why, uh, from a bottom-up analysis, we think that the second half of this year around the end of this year is the time. And second, I think from a kind of natural experiment uh, point of view, you also see the impact of these pandemic policy one of which is that, you know, during the pandemic, the administration boosted the emergency allotment for people's food stamp money. Um, and for a, a poor household, and this is, we're talking about household in the perhaps lower twenty percentile by income bucket, and those people saw, saw their food stamp uh, allotment going from less than one hundred dollars to as much as three hundred dollars. That's like a lot. Every month they got more. And there's more pandemic policies such as childcare, uh, credit, and of course the three rounds of fiscal stimulus. But this this SNAP program, this food stamp emergency allotment, it expired earlier this year at March, March of this year. And immediately you saw this uh a plunge in demand for food, not just trading down to cheaper food, but like just plunge in demand in food. And Uh, You see evidence of that in the earnings call and that, that is, um, you know, finishing up just around now from food company like uh, General Mills, Tyson's. They're talking about a decrease in volumes of of food demand because we saw early signs of that tremendous impact from this, you know, this expiration of food stamp uh, emergency allotment in, in plunging card box shipments. That is actually one of uh, former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan's favorite barometer of the U.S. economy, cardboard shipments and uh, freight rail car loadings. Both of them plunge at the same time. And it turns out that 30% of the demand for cardboard shipments came from food industry. And it turns out that the reason why that, that one of the primary reason, I think, that for that plunge is because of food demand plunge from this this emergency allotment expiration. And now we are seeing, uh, we are expecting to see the expiration, uh, people, a uh, household um, resuming student debt payment in October. And the average amount that uh, of a student loan borrower is about $300 per month in payments. So that basically subtracted $300 per month in spending power they could have in buying other stuff. And so that's a tremendous amount. That could shave off about $9 billion per month in spending power for the U.S. economy. It's a tremendous shock. Similar to the food stamp allotment program that, that also took away about $200 in spending power of a household. And this is what I meant by a natural experiment. You see, these pandemic policies expire, and bam, and then that that's where you get that plunge somewhere. And that's when we, so this is why we, I think that in October, once those payments resume, you're going to definitely see consumers pulling back uh, on consumption. I mentioned earlier in this podcast that consumption is a poor predictor of recession. So if consumption is resilient, it, it doesn't tell you about the chances of recession tomorrow. However, if consumption is not doing well, it definitely will tell you something <laughs> about the, the re- recession probability tomorrow because consumption accounts for, you know, two thirds of the US economy. And so that's, um, that's one nonlinear, um, shock that I'm expecting to see. And I think it will have ripple effects because I mentioned earlier that student loan for bears policy inflated people's credit scores. So, so the Biden administration extended the period uh, of when credit agencies can dock people's credit score if they, they are delinquent on their uh, student loan by another year. So after October, we won't see credit scores deterioration yet from people who could not pay. Uh, on, on the student loans, but I do think that on the margin, some people would be paying and then you will see, see auto loans or other consumer loans, a uh, credit card loans, uh, de- delinquency deteriorate. Because so while credit companies cannot dock a person for being delinquent on student loans, they could dock somebody for being delinquent on auto loans and credit card loans. And all that means that we are going to see credit score deteriorate and the pullback on consumption will also affect firms profitability, which will also lead to, you know, more bankruptcies over time. And so I think we are going to see credit risk measures of various credit risk worsen starting, you know, in the fall and going into next year.
1: Wow. Thank you for explaining that. Because I've I've just been wondering about timing, because it does sort of feel like we're for the last year and a half or so, we're hearing a lot. There's going to be a recession and it's, it's curious when the tipping point is going to be. But I appreciate that, that explanation on your, your thinking about timing. You know, you mentioned the, the unemployment rate of 4.5%. Um, just for, for context for everyone, I think we're at about 3.6ish percent right now. Um, and this is in August of 2023 how bad do you think it's going to get, Anna? Like, it, is this going to be a long, drawn-out thing, a short recession? You know, they come in all sorts of flavors. What are you expecting?
5: Yeah, as uh, as as Anna Karenina, the, the the novel, begins, all unhappy families are unhappy, and they're way, just like recessions. So, <laughs> you know, the average recession would be that unemployment rate have to go near 5%, at least almost 5%. But because the pandemic era has improved the balance sheet of, of, you know, you have investment grade firms, which are able to refinance some of their debt with the lower interest rate during the low interest rate period in in the early part of the pandemic. There are a lot of heterogeneity across credit risk. When I said that this, this recession would be prompted because of the worsening credit risk, I'm Talking about on the consumption side, the poorer half of the country; on the corporate side, the less credit-worthy half of the of the of the corporate world. But there are still pockets of resilience, and I think this is why overall this recession will be a mild one, just because it's not it's not the, the kind of situation of two thousand and eight to have something of the magnitude of two thousand and eight not only do you need vulnerability in the economy and we do have vulnerability in the economy you also need some amplifier some propagation of those weak points right and in 2008 that that propagation mechanism is the subprime mortgage and the packaging and tranches stripping the credit uh, each each of the subprime into various tranches and you know that leads to this intransparency of the credit quality of this assets you're holding. And when subprime started getting into trouble, it is that fear of not knowing what you have in your hand. Is it toxic? Is it not toxic? And that everybody just pulls back. And, you know, you need that kind of propagation mechanism. And oftentimes it's unclear beforehand what it is because because it is so hidden, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's usually... Um, you don't know ahead of time. But as I said just now, if suppose that if in fact that people's credit scores were so inflated and and their behavior in fact mimics uh, somebody with a much lower credit scores today, maybe the credit quality of a lot of assets on the consumer side today are mispriced. Um, another potential shock today is uh, of course the commercial real estate, Everybody has been talking about how it's just a ticking time bomb related to the fact that a lot of commercial properties are vacant right now given the remote work trends that was started um, during the pandemic so I cannot tell you exactly what would be the source of a potential amplifier of of a downturn, but that this is why we are of the view that the baseline is still a mild recession but with the caveat that I think ex ante is hard to say where that shock, uh, that propagation mechanism is coming from.
1: Yeah, it's like one of those things where it's almost certainly not going to be the thing that you think it's going to. You know, yeah, if you hear yeah. about it so much that whenever it's in the media enough that people maybe mitigate against it, or yeah, exactly, I don't know, exactly, they focus on it when there's a bigger creeping uh, risk that no one's really seeing. Exactly. You did, Anna, mention the the commercial real estate market but earlier mentioned something about uh, mortgage quality and loan quality. And I'm curious if you have concerns or thoughts about the residential real estate market and any risk of foreclosures or defaults going up there.
5: Well, you know, Dave, I I was looking at the uh, mortgage origination in the residential market by different percentile of the credit scores. And my observation there was that on the you know lower 10 percentile if you just take those numbers as given you see that the average credit scores of the bottom 10 percentile of by credit scores in mortgage origination was about 60 or 70 points higher than before the 2008 crisis and a second observation is that that average credit scores of the bottom 10% and 20% has been deteriorating in the last 3 years in terms of mortgage origination. And those two things are pretty alarming to me because why is mortgage origination deteriorating at a time where credit scores was inflated? And even like, and in those two years where credit quality was deteriorating in the mortgage origination, that was when credit scores was actually increasingly inflated, not just like, not just inflated, earlier on, but increasingly inflated. So it, that tells me that in the last two or three years, the people who are buying, the higher the interest rate they're getting on their mortgage, the likely that the average credit quality behind that mortgage is not as good as the one two years ago. And furthermore, if I adjust that credit score inflation by the amount that I think is feasible, 50 basis point, um, in fact, the average credit quality is not clearly better than 2006. Hmm. Um, And in terms of foreclosure, now that's a curious aspect of this housing market. What's different today than back in 2006 is that we have significantly lower housing supply. And that has kept housing prices from falling too much. And there are many reasons why housing supply is not as high as before. But I think one reason is also that there's been less foreclosure. And this, I think one of the reasons is also related to the administration policies from Freddie Mac, Fre- Freddie May, that, that I think there has been some remediation policies that has delayed and make it harder for foreclosures to happen. So there it, and also related to the pandemic also, that there's been policies that want to reduce the risk of homelessness on the part of people who are suffering. So from a humane perspective, I can see exactly why that would be the, the case for it. Uh, but from a housing supply perspective, that is that is a one curious case. So I think underneath the surface, a lot of this resilience is perhaps just deferred and delayed because of actual policies, pandemic-related policies.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to see about the credit quality. I had never previously heard about the potentially elevated credit scores. That's really interesting because I've definitely been reassured about the housing market based on some of those credit quality and the fact that even, you know, the a lot of these forbearance programs and foreclosure moratoriums did Lapse more than a year ago, I think, uh, and we're still seeing pretty low foreclosures. They are ticking up, but they've still been pretty low on a historic scale. And so I think that's to me one of the more interesting things, um, in the market to watch for in the next year or so is will a potential recession or, um, any you know, really anything else um, spur more foreclosures in, in the housing market um, over the next couple of years. And I wanted to to shift a little bit uh, out of the U.S. actually. We, we rarely talk about this on the show, but since we have an expert uh, with your background, I would love to just talk a little bit about the Chinese economy. For the last year or so, we've heard a lot about how Chinese real estate um, has been sort of a drag on their economy. Um, it is, from my understanding, um, a lot of asset values have gone down and that's depleted a lot of savings or net worth of a lot of citizens. We also heard yesterday something pretty unique that the chinese government will no longer be releasing uh unemployment data youth unemployment data because it was growing so high uh so it does seem like there's a lot of economic turmoil coming out of china so would love just your perspective on that um but i think for our audience we'd love to know like what impact will the chinese economy second biggest economy in the world have on perhaps the american economy
5: yeah okay on the chinese economy i think um one of the the driver of China's growth has been real estate. And that's related to multi-decade policies in China that suppressed investment options of Chinese household. So Hmm. from Chinese households' perspective, there were not many instruments that you could invest in. And that's why it's very typical for a household to overweight on real estate. And this is why, in terms of a housing bubble, China does have a continuous problem there. And every time the real estate market slows in China, you see significant impact on, on the economy. Hmm. And and economists have used more uh, granular input-output tables to get at the direct and indirect impact of real estate uh, sector on Chinese growth, and that number is actually massive. And it's a, it's a big number. It, and it's much bigger than in U.S. If you think that in U.S., a housing market downturn would push the U.S. into recession, in China, that's like several factor larger. And in the past 20 years, every time you see that there's a, a housing price cycle in China, and it's very clear because you just need to look at the first tier Chinese cities' prices, every time that happens it, there there's hard landing fears in china and there's capital flight away from china the renminbi weakens mm-hmm. and what makes the recent cycle so this this current cycle pretty severe is that it seems to be related to some scarring on the household side from the long Pandemic policies of shutting down the economy. And, and so it seems like this, this time, this China shock, this is a serious China shock. So I would say it could be, uh, even worse than the 2015, 2016 hard landing shock. Some of the indicators that had in the past been indicative of, of the Chinese economy is, uh, of course, as I mentioned, first tier Chinese city housing prices. And in the past, whenever that has fallen, the the government could stop publishing it. And in fact, whenever the government stops publishing something, that's when you know something's not doing well.
1: Yeah, it's not no news is good news. It's right. no news is bad news.
5: Yes. Um so number one. Number two is a, a thing called total social financing, TSF, and um, basically captures the credit impulse of the economy. And it's just falling through the roof right now. It is worse than 2006. That's like in terms of level. That's really bad. That's um, Wow. And I would say as an economist, just as an economist focus on measurement issue, from a statistical agency's perspective, it's actually easier oftentimes to uh, collect price data than quantities data. So at times where all these economic indicators are sending mixed signals – I would focus on prices and some of the prices that you can observe here is for example, you know, Chinese PPI um, and U.S. import prices from China um, because we also collect those data, right? You don't necessarily need to rely Mm -hmm. on China's data. You, You can see some of these data on the U.S. side and those are weakening very much. And deflationary spiral don't come from nowhere. Um, similar, you can extend even the same analysis to the U.S. economy on, in terms of our labor market. A lot of people talk about labor market strength in the U.S., but you look at wages, and you know, and you look at the jobs opening data. Is it possible that just a decrease of thirty-four thousand jobs opening could lead to a more than one percentage point decrease in wage growth? Like you know, it's that sort of stuff where if you Believe more in the price data because it's very easy to collect prices data on. In China's case, you know, prices of of a uh, uh, consumer discretionaries. In U.S. case, it's very easy to collect prices on wages, but it's harder to count the number of jobs, the number of jobs openings, the the housing starts in U.S. and versus in China, it's hard to mm-hmm. count, you know, the exact unit of quantity. Whereas prices data, we have it everywhere. Um, you know?
1: And you're seeing deflationary data.
5: Yes, so I, I think that the key indicators in China, the the housing prices, PPI, and uh, and also using corresponding U.S. data on counterparty data, and also the total social financing data mm-hmm. in China, those are pointing to some serious trouble uh, on par or worse than 2015. Um, in terms of spillovers to the U.S., though, this. When I was at the Federal Reserve, I wrote a paper on the spillovers from a China hard landing on U.S. and global economy. And so you can think of it as having the shock has three propagation channel. Number one is through its impact on commodities. Um, So a weak China will lead to uh, disinflation or deflation on various commodity prices such as iron ores and oil and zinc, copper, aluminum, China's demand uh, historically account for at least 40% of those commodities, right? So number two, the second channel is through trade. So if we export less to China, then from a GDP accounting perspective, we have less growth, right? So these two channels are not so important for the U.S. because in terms of our direct trade exposure to China, very small. Finally, the third channel, which is where it gets dicey, and this is the main channel of how a China hard lending could slow us down, it is through the risk asset channel. So in terms of direct bank exposure to Chinese assets or even you know, indirect U.S. bank exposure to, to China-related, so suppose we are highly exposed to UK bank, HSBC which in is very exposed to Hong Kong or you know China that channel is not that important in terms of finance it's it's really the global risk asset channel what happens if there's a sudden hard landing in China is that it would lead to global risk off so you would see credit spreads widen sovereign spreads widen the dollar would appreciate. So my paper's estimate is that if China falls four percentage point below expectations, then the dollar could appreciate by 6%. And that usually when the dollar appreciates, it tightens global financial conditions. It it makes it harder for companies, you know, higher, higher. And, and so, and also VIX would also increase if China's uh, GDP growth is four percentage point below expectations. Uh, our model ex- expect to see about six percentage point increase in VIX, so that's close to one standard deviation. Oil price would decrease by forty percent. So you know it's it's actually through that channel that pulls back uh, people's appetite to lend that could lead to problems in slowing U.S.
1: U.S. Down. You know you you gave us. Uh... An idea about the US economy and timing. Do you think we'll know anything about the extent of the Chinese economic situation and its potential impacts anytime soon?
5: Well, you know, Dave, as I was saying, when we encounter measurement problem, if the data is not available to to you, what is available to you is actually what is happening to prices and the real world, right? And China does not have a monopoly to its own data. In fact, the U.S. also measures a lot of counterparty data. We can say how much China is importing from us. So if Germany's export to China dropped, because Germany exports a lot of capital equipments to China, there's a usual pattern of how China's slowdown could affect the rest of the world And you just need to tally up those signs to have a good gauge of how bad is the trouble with China. So right now we are also seeing a, you know, people are debating on whether there's a recession in Germany. And certainly the mood is very gloomy in Germany, which is another manufacturing powerhouse. That economy is very much tied to the Chinese economy. If they're not doing well, I think it's highly suggestive that China is, is not doing well either. So also, Mm -hmm. I would look at commodity prices, uh, where traditionally, Chinese demand account for the bulk of it, as I was saying, iron ore, uh, zinc, aluminum. If those prices are falling dramatically, it does tell you that demand is slumping China. So it's pretty obvious, you can tell immediately.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Anna. This has been extremely helpful we appreciate you lending your expertise to us today here on on the market if people want to learn more about what you and your team are doing at bloomberg and follow your analysis and writing where can they do that
5: right um you will need a bloomberg terminal and once you have a bloomberg terminal you type in beco b-e-c-o go and there you can uh, see all our insights and thematic pieces and reactions to data
1: all right great well anna thank you so much for joining us All right. Big thanks to Anna. I hope you all enjoyed that interview. Anna, clearly a very knowledgeable and smart person, knows a ton about the real estate market, knows a ton about the economy. And I really... Appreciated what she was saying. You know, I think there's a lot of different conflicting data out there. But what I really liked about Anna's analysis is that she acknowledged that there's a lot of conflicting data and said, You know, there are certain data sets, there are certain data series that just aren't that good predictors of recession. Maybe they're good at predicting something else, they're important for some other reason, like consumption. She was talking about U.S. consumption. It's not a good predictor of recessions. And so she and her team are able to distill what data points are important and which ones are not. I love that because I think as real estate investors, that's something we also have to do, not just in, you know, broad macroeconomic terms, but also when you're looking for property, you need to decide which data sets are important to you, which indicators, which numbers are really going to determine the performance of your deal. Uh, and so I think learning from people like Anna about how to pick the right indicators, the right data sets, um, is something that we could all learn and benefit from. All right. That's what we got for you guys. Thank you all so much for listening. And we'll see you for the next episode of On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. Produced by Kalen Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire BiggerPockets team. The content on the show On The Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all.